so I can remember around, uh, I'd say, it, it was around Christmas time. I was probably about seven or eight years old, and it was the first time in my life that I was uh, just really, really disappointed with a choice that I had made to put my hope in the wrong thing. So uh, the situation was I grew up in kind of an upper middle class home, so Christmas came and I got everything that I wanted to get. Uh, but my parents would, um, they did this a lot of years, would do like the, uh, you know, you buy gifts for a poor family thing. Uh, so they had money, so they would get these Christmas wish lists and buy uh, buy these presents for these poor families. And so they did this one year, and before my mom could wrap any of the gifts, I uh, went into the bedroom, uh, my parents' bedroom where the gifts were, and I just, I saw this this tool belt, this child's toy tool belt, and uh, immediately just began to covet uh, this tool belt, and I wanted it uh, so bad, and I thought, if I just get this, you know, my life will be complete, and everything will be wonderful, uh, and so I made this known, and because I was from an upper-middle-class home, a couple of days later, my mom came home, and she had purchased uh, the same toy for me, so I got this tool belt, but immediately when she gave it to me, I just got this overwhelming sense of, like, guilt and shame. Uh, and this was because, you know, the, the belt was meant for, this gift was purchased for a, a, a low-income kid, right, this poor kid. And I wasn't a poor kid, and I knew that in two weeks I was going to get, like, every present that I wanted. Uh, and I got this poor kid's gift, basically. So I just, I was filled with, like, this this terrible you know, just guilt and shame, and it was uh, just such a sharp contrast from, you know, what I thought it would bring me. Uh, I, I placed this hope in this thing, and it, it brought me just the complete opposite uh, of what I thought it would. So uh, we're currently in uh, towards the end of a series on Advent, and Advent is, you know, both uh, a celebration and a, uh, a looking forward to this promise that God has made us, right? So it's uh, an idea, it's a time, sorry, where we reflect on this hope uh, that God has promised us. And the idea of hope is going to be our primary focus uh, of this evening. And it's appropriate not only because of Advent, but because as human beings, you know, we all place our hope in something or someone. It's just the way that we're hardwired. And we all have hope for happiness and fulfillment placed uh, somewhere in our lives. There's really no escaping it. And what we place our hope in, the object of our hope, is going to determine uh, a lot about how we do life. We live out of and we live for the hope that we have. So perfect example of this, back to Christmas. Um, this, this week, children everywhere are placing their hope uh, for joy and fulfilled full lives in Christmas morning. Because what happens Christmas morning? Santa comes and you get presents. And so uh, children everywhere are, you know, are hoping in these gifts uh, that will bring them joy and bring them contentment. So uh, this, this shapes the way that they live because uh, this week um, they're waiting for Christmas morning. And what happens if, if, you, uh, if you're a bad kid? Santa doesn't come, right? So it shapes the way that they live because they understand that um, hope in Christmas morning means that you've got to live a certain way. You've got to be a good kid. So at least for you know a week or two before Christmas, they uh, they stop um, you know picking on their siblings and they eat all their vegetables and they don't bite people anymore. And so uh, 
this is, you know, this living out of the hope that they have. And you all remember being here at some point uh, in your life, and you remember what happened on Christmas morning. Uh, you, you'd, you'd walk downstairs, or you'd walk out of your room, and you'd see the tree. I come from an upper-middle-class family, so this is what happened. Uh, so you'd see the tree, and, uh, and you, would see, you would see it sitting right there, you know, this, this toy, this present that you just knew was going to fulfill uh, all of the desires of your heart. And so you'd open the box, and you would put the batteries in it and turn it on, and it's, uh, it's, it's fun, right, for like 20 minutes maybe, for like 30 minutes. You know, you play with this present that you thought was going to bring you so much joy, and it, it runs out of batteries, or the head breaks off, or it doesn't, it doesn't shoot as far as you thought it would, uh, and so you experience this disappointment in the object that you placed your hope in, and so you think to yourself, well, maybe, you know, maybe next year uh, something will work out. And a lot of us, I think, still operate in this same way. Uh, we're tempted to think that we did this kind of stuff just when we were kids, but um, many of us do the same thing, I think, pretty consistently on a bigger scale. We place this hope, we place our hope in people or in things that we think are going to satisfy us. They're going to make our lives whole and complete, and time and time again, they fail us. And so we realize that uh, this object you know, of our hope isn't as great as we thought it was, and we enter into these places of loneliness or depression or anger because the thing that we hoped in didn't deliver. And so we get into these times of deep frustration and longing, and we don't really know what to do or how to fix it. So we just kind of proceed like we always do. We go back to placing our hope in you know, some other thing or some other person and we repeat the process over and over without ever really stopping to consider that uh, maybe our discontentment, our loneliness, our anger, uh, the lack of joy in our lives is there. Not because we don't have you know, the right boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or job or lifestyle, but maybe it's because we've placed our hope in the wrong thing. And placing our hope in the wrong thing not only uh, ultimately will disappoint us, but it's also the reason that many of us feel powerless to offer and to bring hope to the people in our lives. Have you ever heard that expression, you can't sell what you don't have? You know, if you don't have hope, you can't possibly give hope to others. So at the end of the day, you've got to realize that either the hope that we have is going to deliver on its promises to bring us joy, or it's going to fail us. We're either going to experience joy from placing our hope in the correct thing or we're going to experience emptiness from placing our hope in the wrong thing. So the good news is that we have a choice on where we place our hope. And uh, just really my desire tonight, the desire for Scum tonight, is during this fourth week of the Advent season that we would uh, reflect on where our hope can be found and the opportunity that we have to bring hope to others. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we're back in our building, um, just the provision that we get to see from you uh, bringing us back in this kind of temporary home of ours. So we just we thank you for the celebration of that. Pray for uh, our time this evening, God, that you would protect my mouth, that I wouldn't say anything that is detrimental uh, to you or your word. Uh, be with us. Stir our hearts, Lord. We love you. 
All right, so if you recall, we're, we're walking through this Advent season using the hero's journey, which is simply just kind of this big story that all heroes go through. So it involves this call to adventure uh, out of the ordinary world, which is usually either broken or in some kind of like imminent danger. Uh, and so the hero's called out of that into a different world, uh, what we call the special world. And the hero experiences all kind of obstacles and tests, and uh, they've got to pass all these things. And eventually, in the hero's journey, they return from the special world. However, they're different from when they left. Uh, the journey of the hero um, you know, really would be useless if he or she didn't return with something that was going to change or transform the ordinary world for the better. So the hero is transformed and returns uh, you know, better off than when they left, basically. If they don't do that, it's probably a comedy. Uh, if you remember how, you know, Dumb and Dumber ended, if you remember that story? So they're, like, walking down, you know, down the street, it's the end of the movie, and this bus full of, like, bikini-clad women pulls over, and they're like, hey, we need two oil boys to ride along with us around town. And, you know, they basically just, like, point to a town. They're like, you can find some there, Hey. And so the bus drives off, and you realize, well, our, our protagonists are as dumb as when the movie started. So that's, what, that's how comedies do it. But all the other ones, uh, the hero actually returns to the ordinary world better off. So uh, what we've been doing is laying this hero's journey over the life of Joseph. And so we saw his call to adventure when Mary, you know, was like, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Uh, which was probably, you know, well, we know it's kind of unexpected, right? So, but it, it turned out okay. Um, and so we've seen, uh, we've seen, you know, Joseph face these various kinds of obstacles along the way. Uh, last week, Mike told us about this relocation of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, this, uh, the Holy Family is their street name. Um, so we saw that they, they were you know, told to go to Egypt to uh, leave because they were in danger. And tonight in our passage, we're going to see Joseph returning to the land of Israel, uh, returning home from Egypt and bringing with him the Christ child. And viewing the passage through the lens of the hero's journey, this is the final part of the story, and it's called The Hero Returns Home with the Elixir. It's exciting, yeah. So uh, you can turn to Matthew 2. I don't know. Oh, there it is. Matthew 2 is up there. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, obviously it's on the screen. Um, this is going to be our passage tonight, our main passage at least. And we're going to see Joseph's uh, continued obedience uh, to God's guidance in his life. Uh, remember uh, last week Mike preached the Holy Family fled Israel. They went to Egypt to escape the danger of Herod the Great. And uh, where we pick up in this passage is about a year later. So I'm going to start in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. So again, we see Joseph having another dream. Uh, we know, you know, at least along this point in the, in the story that Joseph has not had a night of decent sleep since this whole thing began. This is like the fourth dream that he had, and the second time an angel tells him, you know, get up and go in the middle of the night. 
if I've told my wife, Lauren, if she wants to wake me up in the middle of the night because something's wrong, like she has to turn the lights on and like gently shake me from my slumber and then explain to me, like I'm bleeding out and you have to take me to the hospital now. Otherwise, I'm like, shut up, you know, and I don't want to hear anything. So Joseph's is a cool dude. You know, the angel's always busting out and like, get up and go. And he just takes off and does it. A better man than I am. Uh, so in 19 through 21 here, we learn that Herod and his crew were trying to kill Jesus. Um, and they're now dead. So that's a bonus. And Joseph can complete the final step. In, he was a bad guy. Come on. Uh, Joseph can complete the final step of the journey and return home with the elixir. So let me give you just a little explanation of what the elixir is. And, and what this really means, the, the step that we're on in the journey. Mike has been uh, using Lord of the Rings to illustrate the different stages of the hero's journey, and that's a fine story. Uh, he's also used Star, uh, Star Wars. That's a fine story as well, but I think I'd be a little remiss if I did not uh, reference the greatest trilogy known to man, Back to the Future. Yeah. We're going to just focus on Back to the Future Part 1. If you have any questions about anything else, uh, please ask. If you've never seen Back to the Future, get on your iPhone right now and buy it. So Back to the Future tells this story of Marty McFly, right? Marty McFly is played by the very wonderful Michael J. Fox, who was my childhood hero. I'll tell you a story about that later on when I'm not preaching. Um, and if you remember, at the start of the movie, we find uh, Marty McFly in the ordinary world of Hill Valley, 1985. And so in the first 10 minutes, we learn a couple of things about Marty. Number, number one, he likes to skateboard and play the guitar. And he's pretty awesome. Uh, he's in a band called the Pinheads. And uh, the second thing we know pretty quickly is that his home life kind of stinks. Um, his family is not in the best shape, and it's made very clear that they're unhappy. Uh, you know, they're sitting around at the dinner table. There's really poor lighting. Um, they're reminiscing about, you know, better times that they've had. And uh, Marty's dad, George McFly, is basically like a slave to uh, the antagonist of the story, Biff, Biff Tannen. And uh, George McFly also has, like, really greasy hair and a, and a horrible laugh. So the ordinary world is not good. Uh, quickly after we're introduced to Marty and his ordinary world, he gets this call to adventure, and he begins a journey from the ordinary world to the special world of Hill Valley 1955. How, how many gigawatts did it take? <laughs> One point twenty. Hey, that was really good. Thanks. Yeah, 1.21 gigawatts. So uh, he, tr he travels to the special world via a time machine uh, made by his mentor, Doc Brown, Dr. Emmett Brown. And if you catch Mike Sayers, like, right after a nap, you know, sometimes his <laughs> hair is kind of, and he, it's a little bit, he looks a little bit like Doc, Doc Brown. It's the best compliment you could get. Uh, so through the journey, sorry, filled with adventures and skateboarding and kissing his mom in a car, Marty overcomes all of these obstacles and enemies, and he eventually returns home with the elixir. Uh, he brings with him 
this elixir that will uh, you know, invoke and cause this positive change in the ordinary world. And the elixir doesn't have to be like a physical object. Uh, in Marty's case, uh, we see him uh, come back to the ordinary world and, and find it's been transformed for the better. Again, that's the purpose of the elixir. Um, and, and Marty brings, sorry, Marty brings home this, uh, the elixir that he brings is this like positive change, right? So he's not bringing like a sword or something, but it's this positive change of all the events that he did in the special world in 1955. So, uh, we see his new family. They're now totally awesome. Uh, you've got, um, you know, his parents are like happy and thin and, and they don't have as many wrinkles and the house has great lighting. Uh, dad's now like a successful author and his siblings wear business suits, and they're like 40 and they, they live at home. So I don't know why. But, um, and then Biff is basically, you know, he's, he was the bad guy. And now we find that he's basically uh, like the manservant of the family. So, you know, everybody wins out in the end. And, I mean, the Biff thing's a little odd, you know, if you've ever really thought about it. Because in the movie, Biff, like, assaults every single member of the family. Uh, sometimes kind of like really really terrible things. And then in the future, they give them like keys to the house and their cars. And they're like, you can wax our vehicles. And just, just think about it. It's very strange. You wouldn't do that. And then in Back to the Future Part 2, Biff like tries to murder a few people. So the wheels just fall off with this guy. Not what you want in a manservant. <laughs> off track. So... Marty comes back into the special world and uh, we see, or sorry, from the special world into the ordinary world, we see that it's transformed for the better. Uh, Marty has brought with him the elixir. And so that's the purpose of the elixir is to transform the world. So in the verses that we just read, we realize that Joseph is in this part of the journey where uh, he can finally return to Israel. And so if you've been following the past couple of weeks, you probably recognize uh, some repeated themes that we have uh, in these first few verses, uh, these themes that have characterized the journey that Joseph has been on. I'm thinking of two things specifically. Uh, one, God's constant guidance, and two, Joseph's obedience. So we've talked a lot about those two things the past few weeks. It's, you know, all in all been a pretty bumpy ride so far. Uh, Joseph's fiance, you know, gets pregnant with Jesus. That was, again, at some point, that was a wrench in the whole plan here. Uh, turned out okay. They, they've had to travel all over the place. One time when Mary was pregnant, that's probably not comfortable. Uh, people have wanted to kill them. Joseph's not sleeping well. However, throughout the entire journey, we've seen God's uh, constant provision uh, of guidance, the guidance of Joseph. And we've also seen this constant obedience from Joseph, which comes out of a recognition uh, that God is powerful and God is over all things. So the two things are really working together, God's guidance and Joseph's obedience based on the fact that he knows God will guide, God will lead, and God is over all things. So, um, you know, Joseph knew really at the end of the day um, that God was in control. God had promised him that he was going to be the earthly father to Jesus, uh, Joseph was able to respond to God in obedience because he had placed this hope in the fact that God would guide and lead him. So Joseph's hope in God's promises enabled him to go on the journey in the first place, and, they, and that same hope helped him to be obedient throughout the journey that he was on.
So again, Joseph was obedient because he trusted in God to deliver on his promises. And Joseph's journey here for us is a reminder that our hope has got to be in the promises that God makes us. Right? If we trust that God is in control uh, and is able to and will fulfill the promises that he makes to us, we're quickly going to run out of reasons not to be obedient and to not let God guide our lives and our journeys. So the hope that Joseph had didn't hinder him in his life, but it helped him to accept the call and to faithfully go on the journey that God called him to do. So just think about, you know, the hope in your life. Does it help you in the journey that God has called you to, or does it hinder you in that journey? Uh, A lot of time on those verses. Let's keep going to uh, verse 22. Water than you. Oh. <laughs> or hold it. It's a good object lesson for you right there. Uh, so verse 22, um, I'll read it here. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Joseph gets up, he takes off for Israel, Uh, he's likely headed back to Bethlehem, but he finds out that Archelaus, which was one of Herod's sons, is reigning over that region. And he's, you know, so Joseph's like, "Uh, I don't want to go there, I don't want to do that. Uh, So this is kind of like, you know, Marty McFly uh, making out with his mom in the car, like just doesn't want to, it's actually a terrible connection, it doesn't, that doesn't work. Scratch that out of my notes here. Uh, but so Joseph didn't want to go. Archelaus was this uh, really nasty dude. He was way more violent than Herod. Uh, and so Joseph was scared to go there. Um, and during his time, you know, he's, he's, prob- he's on this journey. He's wondering where the heck to go. And he has surprised another dream. And he's told to go to the region of Galilee, which was ruled not by, not by Archelaus, but by another one of Herod's sons. So there's this change in the plan and you find Joseph kind of going with it. Uh, and I think changes in our journeys, changes in the, in the journeys that, that we're on are going to come. It's not really a matter of if it's a matter of when, but the changes um, through those changes, God will accomplish uh, the purposes that he has. One of the examples I can think of just in my own life was when, when my wife and I first moved here. Now this won't open. Uh, when my wife and I f- first moved here, uh, we we started going to a church. It was just, you know, we, we were here about a month. We were looking around, started going to a church down the street from here, and we thought this is kind of the place uh, that we're going to go to. And we wanted to commit, and we wanted to get involved. So we were going there for a few months, and we felt like, you know, at least for a time, maybe this is where, you know, maybe this is where God's going to have us. So... Uh, after a couple of months, three months or so, I, I met with one of the senior leadership people there for the express purpose of telling him, like, hey, I'm like a seminary student and I want to get involved and let me do stuff here. And what preceded was this, like, 30 minutes of him telling me how stupid I was for going into seminary, uh, not knowing exactly what God was calling me to after that. And he just kind of reamed me, like, up and down. And so I'm I'm kind of slow and dumb enough that I was like, okay, yeah, hmm, 
I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so I can remember calling my wife, who's way more intuitive, uh, on the way home and, and being like, hey, this guy said this. And you know, she was like, what the heck? Like, who does he think he is? Like, who is this guy? So she, she caught on real quick that it wasn't legit. But uh, through that kind of experience, you know, we, we start going to this church. We think everything's fine. And there's this suddenly this big change, this big shift that's made. But I think, uh, you know, looking back, the very next place that we tried was Scum of the Earth Church. So you know, it was the shift that happened. Uh, we didn't really want to go with it, but we had to. And that ultimately led us to Scum. So I think... Um, you know, it was a change in the plan, and God accomplished his purposes for it. Oddly enough, that same church was the place that gave, uh, that gave Reese Roper the old left foot of fellowship, if you know what I mean. So, connection there. I might have butchered the left foot of fellowship thing. I forget how Mike Sayers phrases it. I'm not sure. Yeah, they, they don't know. They don't know at all. Um, so again, we see God's guidance and direction and protection of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, along with Joseph's obedience in the guidance that uh, in the guidance that he's given. So this obedience that Joseph has is because of the hope and the promises that God has for him. So last verse, uh, verse twenty-three, and then we'll talk about what some of this means for us. And he, Joseph, went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So the Holy Family goes to Nazareth, and this is the town where Jesus is going to grow up. And this particular verse is really where, uh, where the payoff is here. It's the verse where Joseph returns home with the elixir. And we know this because of this phrase in verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So what does it mean that uh, Jesus is a Nazarene? If you flip over to or look on the screen, Psalm 22. I'm going to read verse 6 through 8. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So this is a psalm of lament. Uh, you, you might recognize some of it. Uh, it's, the, it's the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's being crucified. And it gives us uh, really a description of an innocent person who suffers greatly. So this psalm tells us something about the Messiah who was to come. Uh, Isaiah 53, one more. This, this is a prophecy about the Messiah that God promised to send to his people. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I'll read verse 2 and 3. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem." So we see, uh, you know, these Old Testament writers and prophets communicating things about the Messiah and the Savior whom God had promised to send. Namely, you know, they were telling us that the Messiah was not going to be somebody who came from, um, you know, all this pomp and circumstance of an earthly king from a powerful city. But instead, he's going to be a person of humble origins who would be despised by 
by the world. And so how does Jesus being called a Nazarene connect him to all this? Um, Nazareth was pretty much just a despised place. It was not a strategic town politically or religiously. It was really small. It was basically like the Netherlands of Israel. You didn't expect anything good to come out of this place at all. And they probably didn't even have those frozen dead guy days. So, so I don't know what they did. So here's the payoff. Um, Jesus, by calling Jesus a Nazarene, uh, Matthew, who was this guy with Jewish roots, he had a thorough understanding of the Old Testament prophecies. He was connecting Jesus to all these uh, Old Testament sayings about the coming Messiah. So Matthew's identification of Jesus as a Nazarene was his way of recognizing that this Christ child is the elixir. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made by God to bring his people a savior. So the elixir Matthew was writing has come. God's promise has been realized and our hope is here. Jesus is this Messiah that that world was waiting for, that our world's waiting for. Uh, he's the true elixir. And Matthew is communicating this. And this is where our hope ought to be. Uh, this is what Advent is about. It's about Jesus Christ, the elixir of the world who has come. And so in, in our passage, we see God working and moving through Joseph and his obedience to bring the hope uh, of the world to Israel. And why, I mean, we've, we've got to unpack for just a second why we have such a problem believing that Christ is the true elixir and it's such a propensity to place our hope in the false elixirs of the world. Uh, there, there was a period in my life in late, very late high school and kind of the first couple of years of college that I began to, to really place a lot of my hope in dating relationships. Uh, some of you can probably, you know, empathize with me on that. So I began to seek out my fulfillment and my joy through these people uh, that I was dating. And I really fooled myself into thinking that, um, you know, if I just find the right person or I find the right relationship, uh, then all of the desires of my heart are going to be satisfied. You know, life's then going to be worthwhile. And the result of this season in life was just constant uh, disappointment. I discovered um, through this that nobody could really bring me what I desired most. And uh, I began to become really self-destructive. Uh, I was placing these uh, on these relationships, on these people, uh, the burden of my hope. And the, the relationships simply could not support it. And it's not that I was dating only like awful people. Some of them were good folks. But it's just that I was placing hope in them that they could never... Uh, deliver, and time and time again, I found that it just crushed me. So, so often we do the same type of thing. Uh, and I think the biblical description of what's happened to us as human beings really explains the situation well. So we're told in, in Genesis, just back it up, go all the way to the very beginning, uh, God created the universe, and everything that he created was originally uh, good. And so the pinnacle of this creation was humanity. God gave human beings this responsibility to steward and uh, enjoy the created world. And the purpose of all of this, 
ultimately was to glorify God and bring joy to humanity. So humanity was placed over creation to look after and to care for it and enjoy it. And our enjoyment of it was uh, supposed to, it ought to have stirred our affections for God and our worship of God. And this lasts for like two chapters. Uh, In Genesis, we're told in chapter 3 that something goes terribly wrong. Humanity decides that... Uh, They're no longer going to remain in this God-given role as created beings worshiping the creator, but instead they try and, you know, kind of reconfigure the rules and place themselves over the creator as if they were the center of the universe, and we all know it does not work. Uh, In fact, things fall apart pretty immediately. Uh, The system that God set up is destroyed. Humanity um, was then cursed with this sin nature and um, all the things uh, that we do are you know, kind of inherently rebellious against God at this point. So by our very nature, we don't hope in the creator. We don't place our hope in the creator, but we place our hope instead in his created things. And I think that we look to and we tend to abuse creation as if it was made for this purpose of glorifying and satisfying us. I think in a, in a very real sense, creation has become um, just a big barrage of false elixirs. And creation fails us not because it's intrinsically evil or wrong, but just because it was never meant to be uh, something that provides us lasting joy and contentment apart from Christ. So in my story with dating, for example, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I realized that my hope was in the wrong thing that I began to, to really shift and place my hope in the right thing. Because you can't have hope in Christ and hope in creation. If you're placing hope in creation, it's like you've got both your hands uh, just wrapped around the wrong thing. And you've got to let go. Uh, You've got to let go before you can free yourself up to grab hold of real hope. So you've got to surrender this hope to the false elixirs of creation. You just can't hold on to both. It doesn't work that way. So when you begin to understand where true hope is found, when you begin to let go of a grip on creation uh, and shift your hope into the promises that God has made and fulfilled in Christ, you begin to realize um, that there's this firmness and there's this fullness of hope in the infinitely powerful life, death, and resurrection of Christ. God offers us a hope in Christ who has come to take away sin and clothe us with righteousness. So there's no longer this uh, need to feel ashamed. There's no longer the sin that separates you from God. You no longer have to bear this burden of hope in false elixirs. And I think it's, it's only when we you know, really begin to understand the fullness of hope in Christ that we can begin this journey that God calls all of us to. So maybe you're thinking, maybe the you know maybe the spirit's just moving in you uh, right now, and you realize that historically you've placed your hope in all all types of uh, creation things, all of the wrong things that won't be um, able to ever bring you joy. So maybe tonight God is just asking you to surrender that false hope to Him.
just let go of it. Um, ask God to transform your heart so that you can recognize Christ as the true elixir. We're going to have prayer back in the prayer cave where it always used to be. Um, so if there's something stirring in this kind of way, uh, go meet with somebody, pray with somebody. Um, think about these things if, if the spirit is stirring. Uh, but maybe we feel like we're in a good place. And, you know, by God's grace, we have our hope in him. Our hope is in Christ. I think Joseph's story has a lot to say about uh, how this hope that we have is never intended to be kept to ourselves. God called Joseph on this task of bringing the hope of the world, hope to the world. And God calls all of us on the same kind of journey. So we can bring hope now to people who don't have any hope. God tells us that we're to be the salt and the light of the earth because we have Christ as our hope to offer to others. So if you're going home over the holidays, you know, maybe this just looks like bringing the hope of Christ to a family that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe friends that you had uh, from high school that don't know Christ. Or if you're staying here in town, maybe you can meet up with folks and, you know, have a conversation about hope uh, that you found that won't leave you hopeless. Maybe uh, bringing hope to somebody looks like inviting them over for Christmas morning, you know, if they don't have a place to go. Or maybe it's just buying a gift for somebody that, um, that you know needs some encouragement. It can look like a lot of different things. A sort of prime example, you know, we're back in our building. So Scum is back in Scum's home. Um, so begin to think about and just kind of meditate on what do we do uh, as a church? What kind of hope do we bring as a church to this place, to this neighborhood, to the community, to Denver? God is calling uh, all of us on a journey. It's not totally unlike Joseph's story. It's a journey to find our hope in Christ and to bring that hope to others. So Advent uh, is, is a time to recognize that Christ is the true elixir. This is what Christmas is about. This is what we celebrate. It's the coming of Jesus. Christ who says, I am your hope. Take the journey that I've called you on and bring me to the world. And I will show you the fullness and the richness of hope in my name. Pray. God, we, uh, we come to you. We love you. We ask that you would uh, do a work in us to recognize um, that we ought to have hope in you, that we ought to place our hope in you, um, that you're the only thing that can bring us lasting joy and peace and contentment. You're uh, the object that we really desire. And so I pray that just this last week before Christmas, God, you would stir in us an affection for you, for your name. We love you. It's, it's in the cross of Christ that we pray. Amen.